All right, we are continuing our study this afternoon through the Second London Confession of Faith, a systematic theology of the major doctrines of God's Word. And I have found this to be a very helpful summary of Scripture teaching on uh, a number of topics. Uh, We looked last week at chapter 9, which was labeled, Of Free Will. And I want to go back to that just to recap this afternoon, because chapter 10, which we're going to look at here in a few moments, really builds on chapter 9. They go together. And for uh, my plan was to preach them together or teach them together last week, and uh, I just felt that would be way too long. So, uh, so let me recap and then see where we're going here. The confession begins in chapter 9 with paragraph 1, which was a definition of free will. You probably are aware that the, do- the topic of the human will, or free will, has been a matter of debate among Christians. Uh, different understandings and discussions of it. So this is the definition that is adopted by the writers of the confession, one I think that is robustly biblical, Um, And it starts this way. There are three parts to the definition. One, that free will is the power to act on choice. The ability to act according to one's own choice or one's own desire. In other words, if a person acts according to his desires, if he is able to do what he wants to do, then he is considered free in that sense. Second part of the definition was this, that human acts are not forced or coerced. In other words, when we talk about free will, part of what we mean is that God does not force a person to act against his own nature, against his will. God doesn't force someone to reject his son when his son, when that person really wants to receive him, or he doesn't... Um, force a person who has no desire to receive his son. Uh, Well, that second part needs a little bit more uh, discussion, but he doesn't force him against his desire. If a person comes to Christ, he comes because he knows he needs Christ. He wants Christ by the mercy of God. But God's uh, work is in accordance uh, or not in, in contradiction to or forcing that person against his will. And the third understanding or part of this understanding is that the human will is not inherently bound by nature to do good or evil. The will in and of itself. And so then we talked about, well, what is the human will like? Well, it depends on when you're talking about. What state of that person are we considering when we talk about the human will? Because as you know, the Bible reveals that certain things have taken place in the course of human history that have had radical implications for um, our ourselves and for um, God's um, working in our lives. The first state of human nature or the human will was the state of innocence, the state of innocence. In that, that was Adam and Eve in the garden, right? They had the ability to sin and the ability to... What? To not sin. Right? Then we saw the state of sin. 
This is man after the fall. Man, apart from grace, just by nature, after the fall, what is true of him then? Well, man lost the ability to not sin in the fall. In other words, when human beings fell, when when our whole race fell into sin, we all became, we all who sprung from our first parents became radically corrupt. There is a there's a depth to our sin that goes all the way down, and it extends to all human beings. You won't find one who is immune from this depravity, and you won't find one part of the human makeup that is exempt from this kind of corruption. The Bible teaches what we sometimes call total depravity or radical corruption. And just to give you a couple of passages, just to remind you from last week, John 6.44, Jesus talked about it in terms of people who would come to him. And he said this, no one can come to me. No one is, literally, no one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And later on in the 65th verse of that chapter, he says again, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my by the Father. What Jesus is talking about when he said it is not able, he is not able to come, is not a, he's not talking about a physical or natural inability. He's talking about a moral inability. That moral inability resides in that man's will. He cannot come to Christ because the truth is, the truth be told, friends, there is nobody who is willing to come to Christ by nature, apart from grace, in the fallen state. That's where the Bible, uh, that's how the Bible pictures us. That's what it says is true about us. Now, I, there are people that want to think that humans aren't so bad, that maybe humans are born innocent like Adam and Eve, and they have to make their own free choices like Adam and Eve. They still have the ability to, to do good and please God and, and seek after God if they want to. <laughs> Which, you know, if that's true, it's hard to explain why nobody has, not a single human being. But it flies in the face of what the Scripture teaches. There is a an inability that is located within a man's will, a moral inability. He cannot come to the the Son in that he inevitably refuses to come. That's human beings in the state of sin. Thirdly, we talked about the state of grace. And the statement in the confession was that grace enables a man to will and do freely what is spiritually good. In other words, in the state of grace, God restores that ability to come to him, to do the good. And that uh, is part of the grace of God in, in working in a man's life. And, and also that grace is, even though it has um, come to him in that way, it is not yet perfected. And that waits for the last state which is the state of glory, which in which the confession says that the will of man is made perfectly and unchangeably free toward good alone. Again, he's still doing. He, there's still a free will, right? He's choosing what is what he wants to choose. But what's the difference in glory? He never wants anything else. Amen. He never wants. 
He never has these conflicting desires. His desires are fully and completely sanctified in the state of glory. And we're praying, amen, amen, let it be so. All right, now that brings us then to this, chapter 10, which is about effectual calling. Because the question that should uh, stand loom large in our view after reading chapter 9, after reading all of the passages that we looked up about how depraved human beings are, how corrupt we are, the question should be, well then how in the world can any person ever get to the point where he believes in Christ? And that's where grace comes in. And that grace is called effectual grace. So let's read paragraph 1 that describes that effectual calling. In God's appointed and acceptable time, He is pleased to call effectually by His Word and Spirit those He has predestined to life. He calls them out of their natural state of sin and death to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. He enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. He takes away their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills and by His almighty power turns them to good and effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. Yet he does all this in such a way that they come completely freely since they are made willing by his grace. You see how that clearly builds on a, a number of things that were stated in the last paragraph. So what we're talking about this afternoon then is effectual, which is just an old way to say effective grace or effective calling. A calling from God that is effective. That is, it is unerringly effective in the purpose for which God intends this call, which is to bring a person to himself, to bring a person to faith. Aren't you glad that the purpose of God is unerringly effective? Amen? That's where our hope is. All the promises of God, all the things that God has said would happen, all of the assurances that He's given us. I mean, if God's, if God's purposes are not unerringly effective, I mean, what do you say to that? If God's purposes are not unerringly effective, I mean, we're well nigh atheists. I mean, it is, it is the God who is described in Scripture who works all things after the counsel of his will. And and his purpose in calling people to himself is just in that same way effective uh, to bring about his purpose. So notice that the paragraph answers two questions about God's call, his effective call to salvation, to Christ. The first question it answers is this. Who is effectually called by God? And the answer, according to the confession, is those he has what? 
Those he has predestined, yeah. See it in there? He has called those who he has predestined to life. And for the explanation of that, you know, go back and see paragraph 3 in the confession on God's decree, and especially his decree of election. God calls them those whom he has predestined in this sense, in the sense of being an effective call. Second question this paragraph answers is how? How does God effectively call a man to himself, to his son? Well, first of all, let me give you six answers right from the wording of the paragraph. Number one, he calls by his word and spirit. You see that there? That's biblical. God calls a man to salvation in himself, in Christ, by his word and the spirit. The word is the means of God's grace. The spirit is the agent of God's grace. God uses his means in order to accomplish his sovereign purpose. In other words, what we should never ever do is to say, well, God is going to effectively save, call and save, those whom he's going to call and save, elected, we don't understand it, predestination, it's in the mind of God. So then it doesn't matter whether we really do anything or not do anything, God's just going to save whom he's going to save, right? But God chooses to save sovereignly through the use of means, through the word and the Spirit bringing that word to life in that person. In other words, is it important that we preach the word, that we witness the word of God? Absolutely. It is essential for the salvation of lost souls. Let us never say, oh, if God will convert, then he will convert regardless of what what happens here, what we do. No, we must be diligently making use of the means that God himself has ordained to bring about his purpose, namely the Word and his Spirit. Secondly, in terms of answering the question, how are the elect effectually called by God? We see that they are called out of their natural state of sin. Remember the last paragraph? The state of innocence, the state of sin. This is referring to that. God calls a man out of that state of sin to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. Now, the next question is, well, how does a man in the state of sin ever hear and answer that call? Because he has, he's unable not to sin. He is determined in his will to fight against God. There's none that understands, none that seeks after God. No one is able to come to me except the Father draws him. So how does that happen? The answer is in the rest of this paragraph. He does this by enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. The Bible teaches us that the natural mind is dark. Right? Spiritually, it's dark. Picture just a dark room. I mean, real dark. Anybody ever been where it's really dark? I mean, out away from Houston. You've got to get far away, away from the city lights, in the middle of nowhere, no street lights, turn off all the flashlights and just stand there in the pitch dark. Especially if it's cloudy and there's no moon, you know, you can't see the stars. I mean, that's, we're talking about dark. Mankind is spiritually dark. So what happens? 
How, how does he see Christ in the spiritual dark? And the answer is that God, in his effective calling, turns on the light. This is the doctrine of illumination. The Spirit of God enlightens his eyes, enlightens his mind, brings light where there was only darkness. This is, this is a, a miracle of grace, just as much as when God looked out over the vast expanse of nothingness and said, let there be light. And there was light. That's what we're talking about here. This is the effective call of God. When God said, let there be light, was there any doubt that there would be light? No, because God's word accomplishes his purpose. And so it is with this effective call. So there is illumination. Then it further goes on to say that he takes away their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. This is the Bible's doctrine of regeneration. Regeneration, being made new, being born again, having a new heart. Then there is this. He renews their wills and he turns them, you see, he turns them ultimately to himself, to Christ. This is the Bible doctrine of conversion. This is the transformation of that person, the transferring him from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And then there is this. He does all this in such a way that they come completely freely. God's not forcing them to be saved against their wills. He's transforming them by mercy. He's bringing the light. He's He's sending out his powerful voice, calling out, let there be. And those people then, by that change of nature, they freely want to be saved. They are made willing by his grace. He restores, in other words, their moral ability by transforming their nature, their desires, their will. This is the doctrine of effectual calling. God calls. And that calling, that voice of God going out into the heart of that sinner, saying, turn from sin, come to me, and that person hears that with the power of the Holy Spirit, it is effective. And that really is the key word in this, um, in this description. It is effective grace or effectual. There, there is a kind of outward proclamation of the gospel and what we what we sometimes call the external call or the general call of God to the whole world come to me and be saved right we are commanded to preach the gospel around the world to every creature right saying come commanding a man to repent of his sin and to come to Christ and yet in spite of that call, that general call made universally to all men, many, um, many reject it, right? Haven't, haven't, haven't you seen that? Of course. So many people have sat under the preaching of the word, heard the call of God um, externally and, and, and rejected it. But then this doctrine is talking about what was sometimes called an internal call of God an effectual or effective call. 
This is, this is not just the voice of the preacher going out over the sound waves. This is the voice of the Spirit of God causing that Word of God to come to life in the heart of the hearer so that God's purpose to save that dear lost sinner is effectually completed. I'm going to give you a few passages on this. The effectiveness of this kind of call. The first one is in John chapter 6. And uh, it was years ago I was teaching through John 6 and John 10. Uh, and, and the teaching of those two chapters, for me, in my experience, was what really cemented my understanding of the doctrines of God's grace. I was teaching a class. There had been some, some pushback in my earliest days here at the church. Some of you remember this, maybe. But there was some pushback um, about the doctrines of grace. And, and understandably, uh, some people were, um, were confused. And, and it, it takes a, a real um, continuing in the Scriptures to just let the Word of God keep changing us. We're all, we're all in, in some place in our spiritual growth. But I was trying to teach what I believe the Word of God taught. And, uh, and I came to these passages and just felt like this was like the line in the sand. I'm, I'm done after this. If, if, the, if, I, if what I believe these passage, if these passages teach what I believe they teach, then, then the doctrines of grace are true. This is right. And so I, I'll never forget those, those passages. I, um, in the little class, I was teaching a school class, a Christian school class, and because of some of the controversy that I'd already had about those, I just said, we're going to skip chapter 6 in John. <laughs> we're just going to go on to chapter 7. But I knew from that moment that I, uh, that I had to go back there and really deal with that and begin to, to, begin to teach and talk about that with, uh, with our church. And by the, God's grace, that was, what, many, many years ago now. Uh, so anyway, in, this passage is really amazing, John 6, John 10 because they touch on so many of these elements of God's grace. They touch on radical corruption. That's found in these passages. They touch on effective grace. We'll look at it in a minute. They talk about sovereign election, and they talk about divine preservation of God's people, all of them. And chapter 10 talks about particular redemption. We looked at that a few weeks ago. So verse 37 is what I wanted to point you to. John 6, 37. And, and I'm not going to take a long time to go through all this, but just, I guess, hit the highlights of a couple of these texts. John 6.37, Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whosoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And it was the first line of that that really arrested my attention. All, all, that the Father gives to the Son, they will come to the Son. In other words, there is a giving of a people from God to Christ. There is a giving that ensures a coming. Right? Would you say it that way? There's a giving that ensures a coming. It makes it 
effective. It makes it certain that they will come. And there is a coming that implies a keeping. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And he goes on later in that passage and makes this statement, and I will raise him up on the last day. I will effectively save and keep all that the Father gives to me. That was a big, um, important verse for me. Another one, uh, several others here, John chapter 10, verse 26. John 10, 26. Jesus says, But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Which sounds to a lot of people to be kind of backwards. A lot of people would want to say, you're not one of my sheep because you won't believe in me. But Jesus says it this way, you won't believe because you're not one of my sheep, one of those whom the Father has given to me. That's the reason why you are persistent in your determination not to believe me. But then he says this, my sheep, verse 27, hear my voice and I know them and they what? They follow me. In other words, when Jesus comes to them, and he said, he said, there are some sheep that haven't yet come to know me, but they're my sheep. They're not part of this fold, but I'm going to go to them. You're going to, the gospel will be preached to them, and they also will hear my voice and follow me. But he was right now calling his sheep out from among this, this nation, and when he, when he calls, what do they do? They come, right? There's an effectiveness in that call of the shepherd. It was like when you heard the gospel, savingly, really heard the gospel, you heard more than just the voice of the preacher in the sermon. You heard God calling you, and it was effective. It was, it was inevitably effective according to the good purposes of God's grace. Another passage that speaks about this is Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Romans 8, this one's good for so many reasons, this passage, but uh, he says, and those whom he predestined, you've seen we have already gone through it a few times, those whom he predestined, he also what? Those whom he predestined, he called. So here's a group of people predestined, he calls those people. And then what else does he do with those people? He justifies them. And those whom he justified, he also what? glorified. So here is a calling that inevitably leads to both justification and ultimately to glorification. It's effective grace. It's an effectual calling. And one more, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 23-24 Paul says that we preach Christ crucified And that message of Christ, the Messiah crucified, is a stumbling block to Jews. And it is folly to Gentiles. But to those who are what? To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, did Jesus not call all men to repent? Of course. Did He not preach to people who who ignored his claims and who turned their back on him, of course. But this call that Paul is speaking of, the effective call, is the power of God, and the, Christ is to them the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
We sing that song, Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room while thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come to the feast that God has prepared. That is talking about exactly this, the effectual call of God is grace. Effectual calling does not merely make our coming to Christ possible, it makes it certain, while still meaning that our coming is free. It is just what we want to do, but it is certain, not just possible. And that's a distinction that some people want to make. They say, well, the grace of God sort of works, but not fully. It just kind of works Part way. This is a caricature. What's the right way to say that? You know what I'm talking about. Caricaturization. There's a lot of uh, syllables in that. But essentially, that's it. God's prevenient grace brings a person to where they might choose Him, but then they might not. And 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 this here's what the Scripture says. Uh, in addition to all these passages, let's look at one more. Second Thessalonians chapter one. I'm um, chapter two. Second Thessalonians two. Verse 13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because, why? Because God chose you as the first fruits. God chose you to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. This is the Spirit's work in their hearts and belief in the truth. This is the, 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 uh, part of their uh, their response to the call of God to this he called you to through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ i think you see in this passage several things you see election god chose you to be saved you see effectual calling to this that is to that purpose to be saved he called you and you see glorification so that you may obtain the glory of our lord jesus christ so since election makes salvation certain then so does its elections earthly outworking which is the call of god just as election is certain to save so in time Election is like in the mind of God apart from time, right? But in time, the call of God to Christ is effective. It's certain. It's, it's effectual in the lives of those whom God has given to His Son. All right, so this is the, that's the longest time. Let's just go through quickly the last three paragraphs here as the confession continues to speak of God's effectual calling to Christ. Paragraph 2 clarifies the freedom and the sovereignty of God's grace. It just clarifies it. It says this, This effectual call flows from God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in those called. Neither does the call arise from any power or action on their part. They are totally passive in it. They are dead in sins and trespasses until they are made alive and renewed by the Holy Spirit. By this, they are enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. This response is enabled by a power that is no less 
than that which raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Boy, several things here, but I'll just touch on two quickly. One, notice that it says the call of God. In the call of God, this effective call, people are passive, right? You see that? They are passive. In other words, they're not doing anything to get themselves called. They don't want to be called. They want to run the opposite way. But then it says they are enabled to what? To answer the call. Now they're, they're not passive anymore, right? They're active. They're answering. They're saying yes. They're saying save me. They're saying I want to repent. You know, don't get the idea that, that human beings are entirely passive in the process of salvation such that we say, well, whatever will be, will be. Right? We call on them to act, to exercise their wills, to turn from sin and turn to Christ, even while we understand that Apart from the grace of God, no, no one is going to be willing to answer our call. But when the grace of God comes and awakens and quickens and saves, um, miraculously, that person says, yes, 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 I choose Christ. Now, Ephesians chapter 1. Oh, the other one, last thing I want to say about that is that this power is likened to the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Right? This is a miracle, in other words. It's taking a dead person and making them alive again. It's not, it's not something explainable on a human level, salvation. Salvation is a miracle of God. And, and friend, listen to me. It's just, we shouldn't, in, in controversy about theological things, sometimes we miss the glory of it. And the glory of it is that this is a miracle of God's kindness that you are saved. I mean, who would have thought? So here's the miracle of God's effective call in, uh, as, as, uh, as illustrated in, in resurrection. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul prays that you may know what is the hope to which God has called you and what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. Amen. This is one of three powerful illustrations of what God's effective call is like. By the way, is anybody a little warm? No? One or two? So how many are not warm? Clearly not warm. I mean, okay. I don't know. Anyway, uh, so you guys can figure it out back there. Um, so three biblical illustrations, and we'll, we'll quickly finish up. One biblical illustration of this effective call or this, this effective grace of God is the illustration of resurrection, right? We just saw it. God calls us according to his resurrection power. Um, when Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus, who was clearly dead, um, Anybody else could have stood there and said, Lazarus, Jesus is out here. Come see him. And what would have happened? Uh, nothing. Just nothing. But when the miraculous voice of the Word of God rings forth, Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, and a miracle happens. Somebody who is dead is alive. And then he comes. 
And this is what happens in the life of a sinner. God says, come, and his effective grace brings them to life from the dead, and they come. Of their own will, they come. Or, here's another biblical illustration, birth. Right? What did you do to born yourself, <laughs> to, or to cause your own birth? Answer is nothing. It's just something that happened to you from outside of yourself. You were passive in that sense. And of course, that is, that is true for every sinner. So, so corrupt in our sin. And it would have to be God that caused a new birth in us for us to do anything, move towards Him. Or here's one more illustration in the Bible that's used to, do, to describe this is creation. We are a new creation, right? Think about the beginning of time, the voice of God going out saying, let there be and there was. That's the effective word of God, the effectual call of God in the life of a sinner saying, let there be new life, let there be um, uh, uh, someone who believes in my son. So, that's paragraph two. Paragraph three and four. Paragraph three deals with special cases in terms of God's effective call. Namely, babies that die and those who are mentally or physically incapable of expressing faith that they are coming to Christ. Here's what it says. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit who works when and where and how he pleases. The same is true of every elect person who is capable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word, who is incapable, I should say. Every elect person who is incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word. Let me just explain this paragraph just very briefly. Number one, all of God's elect are saved, right? So, next question is, how do we know who those people are? How do we know who the elect are? And the answer is faith. We, we, we can't see God's election. We look for a faith-filled response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved, right? But these cases, the ones in chapter 3 here, in paragraph 3, these cases are those who have a natural inability. We're not talking primarily about moral inability here. We're also talking about natural inability. That is, they are not able to understand. They are not able to express faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about little infants that die or people who don't have the mental or physical capacity to respond in any sort of outward way to the gospel, to express faith. So the question is, what about those who are unable to express faith? And some of you know that question so personally. Maybe you've had a, an infant child die or you have a, a loved one who is just mentally incapacitated or physically just unable to speak or whatever it is. You say, well, how... How can he be saved? Can he be saved? And the answer, according to the confession, is that God is sovereign. God is able to save. And remember when Jesus in John chapter 3, he spoke about regeneration, being born again. And he said, it's like the wind. The wind blows what? Wherever it wishes. 
and we can't understand where it comes from and where it goes. He said, so it is with the Spirit. We can be sure that all of God's elect are saved. Now, since we can only identify the elect, since we can only identify the elect on the basis of their faith, I think we have to be careful speaking definitively about infants or mentally incapacitated people who die. But our hope is the same, that God is able to save. He is able to accomplish His good saving purpose. And then the last paragraph deals with those who are not elect. And here's what it says about that. Those who are not elected will not and cannot truly come to Christ and therefore cannot be saved. And remember, this is a moral inability. They're unable in that they are unwilling to come. It says they are unable and... Um, Excuse me, they are not, they will not and truly cannot truly come to Christ and therefore cannot be saved because they are not effectually drawn by the Father. Remember, no one can come to the Father, uh, no, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, right? It goes on to say, they may even be called by the ministry of the Word and receive some ordinary working of the Spirit without being saved. This is a reference to the outward call of God, the testimony and even the conviction, in some sense, of the Holy Spirit, of their sin on their lives. Remember Stephen preaching to people who were dead set against Christ, said, you always resist the Holy Spirit. So there is a kind of work of the Spirit that is resistible, that this is referring to, a kind of outward working of the gospel on people's hearts and consciences. But those whom God does not effectively call will not and cannot come, it says. Lastly, it says this, Much less can any be saved who do not receive the Christian religion, no matter how diligently they live their lives according to the light of nature and the teachings of the religion they profess. So the question might come up. We just looked at the last paragraph that says God can save when and where He wills. So we say, well, what about those who don't confess faith? We've said that maybe these who do not confess faith can be saved. What about people in other countries who've never heard the gospel or people who have rejected the gospel? Maybe God can, maybe God will save them as well. And the confession says no. No one can be saved who does not receive the Christian religion. Talking not about those who have a natural inability, like the infants and the incapacitated, but those who have a moral inability, those who are passed over in the effective calling of God. In other words, all of this speaks to this, the absolute necessity of receiving Christ and a, the preaching of the gospel to people and the reception of the, the gospel in order to be saved. Ma, um, Romans chapter 10 is one my mind always goes to. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be what? Yeah. But how will they call on Him in whom they have not what? Believed. And how will they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? 
Remember back in paragraph one, and uh, talked about the effectual call coming by the Word and the Spirit. This paragraph goes on to say, if there's no Word or if there's a rejection of the Word, there is no salvation. Remember 2 Thessalonians 2.14, God called us through the Gospel. The Gospel is that means. This is why missions is essential. We believe that God will not save apart from the preaching of His Word and the effectual work of His Spirit in that Word by the mouths of those who He sends to preach around the world. We shouldn't say, well, God will just save anybody anywhere. Why does it matter if we do missions? Maybe God will just save them even though they've never heard the Gospel or they've rejected the Gospel. This is why we pray that God would send forth laborers into the harvest. Who will? How will they hear without a preacher unless he be sent? This is effectual grace, and it reminds us that salvation is an absolute miracle. It's a miracle of God's sovereign grace. If it is true, if it's true that you and I were really and truly dead in our trespasses and sins, if there it is true that in our flesh there is no good thing, if it really is true that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, if it is really true that those who are in the flesh cannot please God, then what hope is there that any of us could possibly be saved? And the answer is it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a miracle. Something from outside of us working upon us in the, in the amazing kindness and mercies of God. And that's exactly who gets all the credit in this. It is God and God alone. What a salvation that is a testimony to the unrelenting love of God. Relentless love pursued my heart, though I would hide. Was unreturned and yet undeterred by pride. Until by a grace unsought, my rebel soul was caught, redeemed by love that would not be denied. It was relentless love, effective grace that called me to the Lord Himself.